morning to each and every one of you, and what a wonderful day of celebration this is for the Smith family as we baptize Stetson James. So we are so pleased and thankful for, for that. Well, let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we once again bow before you because without you we can do nothing. And we know that your voice is the only voice that will help us. We praise you that you have claimed us in Jesus Christ and you have separated us and that we are your sheep. Now let us hear your voice, O great shepherd of the sheep. We pray as you speak to us from your word in the power of the Spirit that you would help us and give us understanding that we might be all that you have called us to be. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you would think, if our children were young today, Laurie and I would covenant baptize them without question. We were not raised this way. We were both raised Baptistic and are actually very grateful for that providence in our lives. That is where we first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have retained a good number of believing friends from those early days. For many years, I did not even know that there was another historically held biblical position to consider besides the Baptistic position. Indeed, when I did find out that there was another one, ask Laurie. I just automatically dismissed it as being way out in left field, biblically. Baptize infants? You have got to be kidding me. But through much pain and trial in my life and ministry, I was providentially forced to at least consider looking at the scriptures in a different way than I had previously. And I am now so grateful for that providence. I'm grateful to see God's word framed in a covenantal way. And that is what has made all the difference for me in my understanding of covenant baptism. The OPC is reformed because it holds to the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God in all things. But what makes the OPC fully reformed, emphasis fully reformed, is its commitment to covenant theology and to what we call the beauty of the covenant. The beauty of the covenant is how God graciously includes the children of believers into the visible church with their parents, counts them as his own, and gives them special covenant promises. Well, this is all signified in their baptism. And it is a tremendous encouragement to the parents and to their children as well as they learn Growing up that God has separated them and branded them, so to speak. He has put his mark upon them and set them apart for himself. The goal being that they, by God's grace, 
would make a reality what their covenant baptisms signify by making their own true profession of faith in Jesus Christ and becoming communing members of Christ's church. Stetson James Smith is a covenant child by virtue of his believing parents, and that is very important to note. Stetson is a covenant child because of his believing parents, and God sets the whole family apart and brings them into the church. And baptism for Stetson recognizes, signifies this covenant status. Canon and Leslie then can have great confidence in the blessings that God holds out to their children. As Peter said, the promise is unto you and your children. I do not know the whole story of how the Smiths came to this biblical conviction of being fully reformed, but I do know that it can be a very frightening transition for many Christians who were raised in the Baptistic tradition. It was absolutely frightening to me. And often, fear leads to anger. Well, that was the case for me as I faced a whole new position in my study of the Scriptures. I threw things. Yes, Your pastor throws things in fits of rage. (laughs) Deal with it. From my own personal perspective and retrospect, I can see why the OPC is so patient and so understanding with its members as they struggle with these very important matters. This was not a walk in the park for me and Laurie, because it involved a total mind shift in understanding the scriptures as a whole. I will confess, though, the agony was completely worth it. Covenant theology and the beauty of the covenant are the best way to view God's word as far as I'm concerned. And therefore, I believe obedience to it brings the greatest encouragement to parents, their children, and to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. So this morning, I want to share with you several major reasons why I would baptize my children if they were young today. This is a very broad subject. There's no way we can hit on everything. I simply want to share with you several reasons why I would baptize my children in their infancy if I could go back in time. The first two reasons are broad foundational truths that must, must be understood in order to embrace the beauty of the covenant. The first reason I would baptize my children is because I came to understand how the entire Bible is framed by the covenant of grace. That's the first reason. 
It's a broad, holistic, foundational truth. There's a great reason why our Bibles are divided into the Old and New Testaments. They are mainly, as you know, divided that way because of the all-important incarnation and redemption, uh, redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that the Old Testament is devoid of grace. Far from it. God's grace does not begin with the New Testament. It begins with Genesis. Actually, it begins in eternity past with God choosing a fixed number of undeserving sinners to win for himself. But we see that being worked out in history as early as Genesis chapter 3 right off the heels of man's fall into sin. Genesis 3.15 should shock us because there God promises to save all of his elect people through Jesus Christ who is the seed of the woman. The story of redemption is not our story The story of redemption is God's story. We call it the covenant of grace. And it runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it is the drama of how God keeps his promise to save a people for himself through his son. If Christians do not see that from the very beginning of God's word, they will not baptize their children because the Old Testament will seem largely irrelevant to them. But if they see it, they will see God's grace of salvation all over the pages of the Old Testament. The covenant of grace was crystallized to Abraham. God promised to Abraham that through him, that is through his seed, through his offspring, referring to Jesus Christ, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And so as early as Genesis 12, we see God promising to save all of his people, even all of the Gentiles who would ever be saved. We see that as early as Genesis 12, you and I are in that scope. As God promises through Abraham's offspring to bless every nation, every family on the entire earth. Well, Abraham believed God about this promise concerning his heir. And righteousness was reckoned to him. Then the God of promise commanded Abraham to keep the covenant by applying the sign of this salvation he had just received to all of the males in his household, including the infants. The covenant sign for salvation at that time, of course, was circumcision. Some Christians would say today, why are you even talking about this? 
That's the Old Testament. No, that's the covenant of grace. And God's promise to Abraham has everything to do with why Old Testament folks and New Testament folks are called out by God unto Himself, regenerated to new life and enabled to believe. That's because the covenant of grace is for Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, and it's all centered on Jesus. And the New Testament testifies over and over and over that this is so. In praise to God about the announcement of Christ, the Virgin Mary said God remembered His promise to Abraham. Zacharias said the same thing. The first three sermons in the book of Acts also appealed to the important covenant that God made with Abraham. The Apostle Paul in Romans and Galatians makes the very same appeal. And the Apostle James appeals to this covenant with Abraham as well. The reason they all do this is because God's promise to Abraham is all about Jesus. And it was fulfilled in the virgin birth and in his redemptive work. In my Genesis series several years ago, I titled one of my sermons, God Remembered Abraham, and it was downloaded more than any other almost more than any other sermon that we have put on sermon audio. Lesson learned. If you want Christians to listen to your sermons a lot, title them, God Remembered Abraham. If God had not remembered Abraham, where would we be? Where would we be if he had not remembered Abraham and his promise to him? None of you and none of your children would be saved. None. Period. It is important to note that in the covenant of grace, Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the promise of God's future coming Messiah, And New Testament saints are saved by looking back in faith upon his finished redemptive work. Salvation for Old Testament saints was given to them on credit, so to speak. And in in a picture, a true biblical picture, an astoundingly large bulldozer pushed all of their sins forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. These former sins of the Old Testament saints, if Jesus didn't die on the cross for them, then God would be unjust because most of these people were in heaven already. Their sin was dealt with at the cross. The same as ours. And thus God faithfully kept his promise in the covenant of grace to save a people for himself 
through the seed of woman. The first reason I would baptize my children if they were young today is that the covenant of grace runs throughout the Old Testament and was fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not merely New Testament creature, uh, Christians. We are whole Bible Christians. And I did not have this perspective before. And I thank God that I have a better grasp on it today. Unless Christians have this perspective, they will not baptize their children. The covenant of grace is the first reason I would baptize my children today. Well, the second reason I would baptize them if they were young is that there has always only ever been one people of God. Just one. The vitally important truth of this flows right out of a proper understanding of the covenant of grace. Because many people have not been taught well in our evangelical church today, their default position is that Israel and the church are completely distinct entities from one another. And that Israel, well, that was Israel, and we now are the church and the two have nothing at all to do with one another. That is so false. That is so biblically wrong. And those who believe this way will never baptize their children. Never. From the beginning, there has only been one people of God. The church has always been God's plan A. This is seen in the use of the word congregation, for example, in the Old Testament. And that Hebrew word for congregation, or it can be translated church, is perfectly synonymous with our New Testament word for church in the Greek, ecclesia. For example, in Exodus 12.3, God said to Moses, Tell all the congregation, tell all the church of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house as a lamb for a household. Well, that word congregation identified a visible group of people that belonged to God. The word church or congregation in the New Testament has the exact same meaning For example, Hebrews 12.2, the writer says, in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the church, Ecclesia, I will sing your praise. Well, this is a quote from Psalm 22.22, which says, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The church did not begin with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rather, it began in the Old Testament and our promise-keeping sovereign God has been graciously adding to it ever since. There is just one people of God. The New Testament church, therefore, did not replace Israel. No, no. Rather, a multitude of believing Gentiles 
were added to the already existing Old Testament church. I won't belabor this because we studied it not too long ago, but in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that the wild olive shoot referring to the believing Gentiles was grafted into the original tree. There are not two different trees. There has only ever been one people of God. Again, with the finished redemptive work of Jesus Christ, a multitude of believing Gentiles were added to the already existing Old Testament church. Now the New Testament church spans the globe for one reason and for one reason only. God remembered Abraham. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is the God of promise. And we're reaping the benefits as children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. I won't belabor what I'm about to say here either because we studied it fairly recently as well. Speaking to to the Gentile Christians at Ephesus, Paul tells them, you were without Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that is far off from the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, the believing Gentiles have been grafted in and are now part of the one people of God, true Israel. Now that should make all kinds of sense to you because Jesus is true Israel. And in him through faith we are the Israel of God. All other Jews, every other Jew who had ever been born and lived in Old Testament history were corrupt in every part of their beings because of original sin. There was only one Jew who was perfectly righteous before God, and he is true Israel. And through faith in him, we are in him as the Israel of God. In fact, The Apostle Paul calls New Testament folks in Galatians chapter 6 the Israel of God. Meaning the true people of God who are the believing children of Abraham. So I would baptize my children because of the glorious covenant of grace. And I would baptize my children because there has always only been one people of God, not two. And last, I would covenant baptize my children if they were young today because the one people of God 
and their children have always, always been identified by the sign of the covenant. It makes all kinds of sense, don't you think? That when you get to the day of Pentecost, Peter says to his Jewish friends, repent and be baptized for the promise is for you and for your children. And that's because God delights to set the children of believers apart for himself with their parents and to build up his true church generationally through them. Yes, I would apply the sign and seal of the covenant to my children. Yes. What a wonderful promise God gives through Peter in Acts chapter 2 for the believing parents and their children, among other things. Listen, it's the promise. It's, it's the, it signifies the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Holy Spirit. Did God not say that he would dwell with his people and that he would be their God? Wasn't that wonderful when Pastor Paul earlier read from Revelation chapter 21 and that forever and ever and ever because of God, a covenant-keeping God, we will dwell with God. He will be our God and we will be his people. God does not leave the children of believers outside of the visible church. He would never do that. We see with Abraham that the sign can be applied after a profession of faith or it could be applied before a profession of faith, as in the case of Abraham's children. So when I read about the households, in, uh, I'm telling you why I would baptize my children. So when I read about the household baptism in Acts chapters 10 and 16, for me personally, they are very, very powerful with this background because the same Basic language was used in the days of Abraham. You and your household. I can't get away from that. We read earlier about Lydia and how the Lord opened her heart to hear the gospel. That was God remembering His promises, promise to Abraham. And then she was baptized and her whole household. We think of a household in terms of mom and dad and just a few kids, unless you're a Harding, of course. But in that culture, households often included extended families and servants, just as in the days of Abraham. Well, Lydia was a woman of wealth. The Bible is clear to point out what she did for a living. And she would have had servants. The odds of a small child not being in, the, in that mix somewhere is very small in my mind. 
And then add to that the other household baptisms. Yes, I would baptize my children today if they were young. Yes, yes, I would. I would baptize my children because God has a special love for the children of believers. He calls them unto himself, puts them into the visible church with mom and dad and the other folks and gives them blessing after blessing after blessing. When Jesus took the little children in his arms and blessed them and said, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. He was doing this to covenant children. He was in Israel. He wasn't in Babylon. They, these children had received the sign of the covenant, and it's so important for us to understand that. This is what he this, this is his love. For all professing believers and their children in the visible church. He does the same thing with our children today. Because circumcision and baptism have the same essential meaning. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 argued that so well a Jew is not a Jew outwardly. (laughs) It's the circumcision of the heart. That's the new birth. That's regeneration. That's cleansing from sin, and that is union with Jesus Christ. Well, baptism has that same meaning. And so both signs are signs of regeneration, cleansing, and union with Jesus Christ. The bloody sign of circumcision looked forward to the cross of Christ. And then the blood is taken out of the sacrament because it was shed on the cross. And so baptism symbolizes the finished work of Jesus Christ. So you have two sacraments in the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And in in the Passover which transitioned into the Lord's Supper, it was bloody. And the blood was taken out of it because the ultimate blood was shed by Abraham's promised heir. Same thing with circumcision and baptism. The blood is taken out of it. And now baptism, with the same essential meaning as circumcision, is to be applied to our children, yes, I would baptize them if I could go back. Yes. In church history, the earliest reference to covenant baptism was by Irenaeus in the second century. Origen mentions it three times in the third century. Christians baptizing their children was standard practice. And Do we not see from the great confessions of the Reformation that it was a standard practice? Wow. 
Yes, I would baptize my children if I could do it all over again. It has only been over the last 500 years that believers' baptism has come to be set at odds with infant baptism in a major, major way. America was fertile soil for the Baptist position where individualism was everything. He's pictured, uh, the American could be pictured by the Marlboro man. Individualism. And baptism has become, to a great degree in our country, what a picture of what I have done, my choice of Jesus Christ, my statement to the world that I claim Christ. I choose to believe and follow Jesus, and my baptism is a sign of that. Is there part of that that is true? Absolutely. Baptism primarily is not man's testimony. It is God's testimony based on the covenant promises from the very beginning that he made and that he has kept so faithfully in Jesus Christ. It is not primarily our story, folks. It's God's story. And he will receive all of the glory. Baptism and this table are pictures of what God has done through his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I would baptize my children today. It is the beauty of the covenant. Of course, God's main mode of operation is for adult believers in the world as we give the gospel, you, me, the OPC, our sister churches, give the gospel to the lost. What do we do? We take those adults and we bring them into the church and we we baptize them, don't we? We with the baptistic position, we're in perfect sync with that. That's absolutely correct. But I believe with all my heart that with the background of uh, the covenant of grace and the, the fact that there is only one people of God, our position is much more weighty. Is there anything explicit about a baptism in the New Testament for a child? No. But always remember this, both us and the Baptists are taking a position where there is nothing explicit. If you'll remember that, you will be confident in your position as a Reformed Presbyterian. And what I mean is this, we both agree that adults should be baptized but there is not one explicit example of a child who was born and raised by Christian parents in the Bible anywhere who was later baptized. There is not one. If there was, the whole debate would be over. But I'm very confident myself 
and I wanted to share with you my convictions and a little bit of the torturous journey in getting there of how I believe that this has heavy, heavy weight to it. It is the beauty of the covenant. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer has a grave warning to the church. He says this, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now this warning is given to those in the church who may have made a false profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they're in the church. But I think we can very quickly understand this in terms of covenant children. These were the Hebrews that the writer to the Hebrews was uh, addressing. They understood for 1,500 plus years that the children were always included in the covenant and received the sign of the covenant. And so if these covenant children grow up in the church and they bump up against the gospel, they bump up against your love, they bump up against your prayers on their behalf, and they go on sinning and turn away from any humble confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins because they have bumped up against as much light as a person can bump up into. And so we can readily see this, can't we, children? So children, repent of your sins and don't delay any longer. Look to Christ who died for sin and be saved. Don't let your confession be wishy-washy. Children, we the last thing we want for you is you, for you to be raised in a church like this one and then come to be a teenager, a college student, a young adult, and turn away from the living God by, 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 by not professing faith in Jesus Christ and, and walking in humble repentance with your Lord. That's the last thing that we want for you. For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of, of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire. I don't think we want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that for you. So children, understand how important this is. And understand that the Lord will come soon. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And there will be no time left to turn to Jesus with all your heart and say, I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. No, 
You're my Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray that all of our hearts would be directed like this. Now bless, O God, as Stetson and his family are blessed. We pray that uh, as he grows up and understands how you have separated him unto yourself with his parents, that he would come, Lord, by your grace to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and not be like Ishmael and not be like Judas, but like Jacob and Isaac. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.